Welcome to the 154th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Simon Sobo, author of the new novel, Commodore. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is sponsored by the book-loving nerds at Riffle. Riffle is an online book community that connects readers with authors and books that they'll love. Readers use Riffle to find the next book that they want to read, and authors use Riffle to make their books stand out and drive sales. Join the Riffle community today at rifflebooks.com. That's R-I-F-F-L-E-B-O-O-K-S.com, and look for the link in the show notes as well. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Simon Sobo, the author of Commodore, a new novel about the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt, one of the richest and most successful American businessmen, and a man who, like so many American success success stories, grew up poor and succeeded in building great success and financial wealth. Simon, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Great. Well, can you read the first couple of pages of your novel, Commodore? Yeah, fine. Um, Staten Island, 1802. The last 20 days, the weather has been overcast. It's April, yet the gray, dark winter sky seems like it will never give way. Not an hour of sunshine to warm the face. Not a single warm afternoon so that the body can lose its chill. 6 a.m. Trailing behind his father, Cornelius Vanderbilt, nine-year-old Cornelius, also known as Cornel, makes his way across the potato fields. Deep mud from the melting snow sucks at the boy's boots, making it difficult to climb the incline. Old Cornelius is irritated by the slowdown. He's had to stop his wheelbarrow several times so so that his son could catch up. Gloomy weather like this would sour the mood of any farmer, let alone Cornelius. The freezing drizzle is also rotten luck for Cornel. He and his father would have taken shelter from rain, but his father insists, cold, cold as it is, a drizzle is not enough reason to leave the fields. Making things worse, the form borders New York's upper bay. A storm may be coming. High, mean waves are crashing into the shore, sending sprays of icy salt water into the air. This joins the freezing drizzle as gusts of wind sweep the moisture 100 yards into the farm. Cornel's deep, I'm sorry, Cornel's damp wool coat provides little protection. The wind finds its way beneath it, injecting icy chills that cut right through him. More meat on him him would help prevent the chill from seeping into his chest. Every few moments, a sharp, frozen, aching aching sensation reaches his bones, especially his knees. Old Cornelius started the morning, as he does every morning, wanting to call it quits. After the rooster startled him from his dream, he pulled his quilt tighter, kept his eyes closed, and, if for only a few moments longer, fought to stay, to stay asleep. No luck. As the dream dissipated, it left him all nerves, which increased the longer he, he, lay there, he lay there. Now, an hour later, angry energy propels him forward. He parks his wheelbar- wheelbarrow carefully, facing up the hills so that it won't fall, reaches for his pickaxe, lifts it over his head, and swings it wildly into the mud, trying to free a large rock from the soil. He is a man at war, hurling his fury at the enemy, which is everywhere. Cornel stands nearby, ready to help his father, 
but he's aggravating him more than he is helping him. When they first went outside, Cornell played with the frosty air. He, he blew out a thin stream as far as it would go and waved his hand through, through it as if it were smoke. He tried to make rings. His father looked at him like he wanted to kill him. As usual, Cornel doesn't seem capable of standing still. When you work, you work. No bullshit, he lectures. Cornel, Cornel's heard it a hundred times. I'm sorry. Cornel's heard it a hundred times. Heard the anger as his father said it. Only lately, it's moved beyond aggravation to a fury firing out of his eyes. Cornel, how much more do you want me to read? I mean, basically. That, that's fine. That's fine. The father is not crazy about his dreamy son. Sure, sure. Well, I described Commodore briefly in the introduction, but can you describe your novel further for those listeners who haven't read Commodore yet? Well, it's really an amazing story. I mean, this man came from nothing. His uh, ancestors came to America as indentured servants. The family's uh, luck went up and down. But his father was an illiterate orphan. Both of his parents died when he was three. And his uncle didn't want to you know, who, who fed him, didn't want to give him up to school um, so he could get the most work out of him. He's a bitter man. This is his father I'm describing, by the way. He, he's a bitter man and takes it out on, on his son. Um, I'm talking about a time that people really don't remember um, when American farmers, most of the people were farmers, struggled for existence. I mean, there was no safety net. There was... Uh, Nothing to help you out. People literally starved. We were like a third world country in the very beginning. This is uh, the 1790s and early 1800s I'm talking about. I mean, neighbors, if they had extra food, might help out. But if there was drought or, or crops went bad, Americans starved. Um, okay, so he came from that family. His mother came from a, a slightly uh, better family, quote unquote. Um, she... Uh, was a ship captain's daughter, but the ship captain died when she was seven, and that was the end of her family. Um, they were all, the mother couldn't feed them. There was no life insurance in those days, um, and they, there was no way she would be able to take care of, I, I think it was five or six of them. So she, they were all parceled out, like, exactly like her, uh, um, her husband-to-be, um, uh, Cornelius' father. They were parceled out. She lived in a minister's house. Anyway, the two of them married and um, didn't do too well. Uh, he, was, he was a bitter man who had felt exploited by his uncle and did as little work as he could. Um, Cornelius, um, however, I'm, I'm going to read you another section, okay? Sure, sure. I'll just get organized for a second. Mm -hmm. um, well, actually, I, I think I'm going to read you about the, uh, the mother's situation. Um, and is this Cornelius's mother? This Cornelius is mother. I'm trying to give a background to how sure. tough it was yeah. and why Cornelius eventually becoming the richest man in the world had great significance to him. And I might add, as we'll get into it later, the rest of the country, because he was your original hero constantly in the newspaper. He was the Michael Jordan of his day, um, but they didn't have sports and, and legends built around people. Um, it's the three most famous people, supposedly, in the 19th century were Vanderbilt, um, uh, Edison, and Mark Twain. Uh, so, you know, it, this is it's the old 20 minutes of fame. He had a lifetime of fame. 
fame, but he's now a forgotten man, other than people kind of have heard there's the famous Vanderbilt sure. and the fam- Vanderbilt family. But um, he was it. There was something about him in the newspaper practically every day, so much so that Mark Twain wrote a scathing um, letter to him, um, because he was probably jealous of all the attention Vanderbilt got, talking about how he's a, a money grubber, basically, and, and Twain's above those things. Um, there's great irony in that, in that Twain kept playing the part of a gentleman, never talking about money. And, uh, you know, he actually was a wild man who ruined his uh, his finances trying to, you know, make a, a million bucks, not just from his writing, but as a publisher, etc. So he, he wrote this scathing letter as if he was uh, a Buddha somewhere that would never be concerned with money. Anyway, getting back to um, Vanderbilt and his mother, <laughs> mm-hmm. going in other directions. Okay, so she's describing uh, things when uh, her family got split up. After her father died and um, the mother could not feed her and her siblings, and as I said, they were each sent to different cousins, or in her case, it was the, uh, the minister. The worst was not seeing each other. Okay, I should mention that Vanderbilt, the, the story takes place as Vanderbilt is dying, and there's hundreds of reporters outside screaming, waiting to, for the story when he actually does die. Mm-hmm. Vanderbilt invites one of them in, and somebody who had written something nice about him, and is obsessed with kind of telling his story and, uh, to leave a be- better legacy. So the reporter is interviewing him. So the book, I mean, in the book, he's talking to the reporter, okay? But I, this will also give you a, something of his character. He spits into the spittoon. The worst was not seeing each other. My mother told us one story again and again. She was 16 and walking on Broadway in Manhattan. She passes a stranger. There's something about him. His eyes also linger on her. They continue walking. Suddenly he turns back and runs, runs back to her. Are you Phoebe Hand? I'm your brother Frank. She grabs him, holds him for dear life. Neither can stop the tears. I thought so. I thought so. No matter how many... Now he's talking to Birch, the Mm -hmm. reporter. No matter how many times she told the story, her eyes would tear up. Vanderbilt's eyes begin to water. After that, she didn't see him for another 30 years. He had to go back down south. I actually met him. Came to the house disguised as a beggar. Wanted to see if she'd recognize him. Did she? No, they had a good laugh. Um... Anyway, so these stories would be told about um, her father and uh, her growing up to the family. And, you know, one of Vanderbilt's sisters has heard the stories a thousand times um, and really turns off every time her mother mentions her father and her childhood. But um, Vanderbilt's the exact opposite. When her her mother tells you stories, it's like a hit song playing in his uh in his mind over and over again. Uh, he, he just loves hearing the melody again and again. Um, so she would talk about her father like he was a king, um, the captain. Remember, she was seven when he died, so the, you know, her father was idealized. And this is really what um, probably catapulted Vanderbilt out of his family. His father certainly wasn't an example for him, but his mother talking about her dead father the ship captain, um, probably, I mean, when he was a kid, he used to play games um, wearing his grandfather's hat. As I said, they, they had a farm right on the edge of uh, Staten Island looking towards Manhattan. 
and he would on his spare time he would sit there and and watch the ships come from all over the world mm-hmm. into Manhattan and dream of going. To, this is a farmer uh, going to sea. Um, you know, his father couldn't stand that he was a dreamer. Couldn't stand how much his mother was crazy um, about him. But um, you know, he would make fun of him as a dreamer. And you know, we got farming to do. He had memorized the names of every ship that came through. He could identify them by looking at him. His father just, you know, mocked him for for wearing his grandfather's hat and, um, uh, you know, knowing that is this how you spend your time knowing the name of every ship? Um, the family was held in contempt by the rest of the uh, community. Uh, it was humiliating for his mother and. Um, his father earns it all. He he was a real get-rich-quick guy. Um, he, he didn't learn how to work hard, and he found many excuses to not go to work. But he would, whatever money there was, he he would throw or th- sell the cow for some, you know, cockamamie scheme. Sure. Um, so the whole the whole family was looked at as, as illiterate and uh, the, the bottom. Even though people, all the people were struggling, right, so that right. at school his. Uh, his teacher would mock him, you know, as so uh, one of those Vanderbilts, uh, um, you know, just a, you know, didn't do his homework, didn't pay attention, and uh, basically wanted not to be there. Sure. So, so let, let let me ask you this. I mean, most people have heard the name Vanderbilt, um, but they probably don't know a lot of his backstory and what you're telling us. But how did Vanderbilt make his money? What was his fortune based on? What was his business? Well, I, I, I would say he was, you know, he had a very extremely clear business plan. His business plan was make money. And um, he thought about how to make money morning, noon, and night, he said. He, he thought he was, it was almost a sickness with him. So he was always looking for something to do. What happened was after uh, the tension with his father heated up to such an extent that he was ready to leave um, because he had, he had quit school at 11, by the way, mm-hmm. and, um, uh, you know, was working with his father and his father just con- continued to treat him with contempt. He quit school, by the way, because the teacher treated him with contempt as well. I mean, you know, that, and, and, and kids made fun of him because he had a hole in his shoe, et cetera. So he was filled with humiliation, but he was always a fighter. So he wasn't, you know, like nobody felt sorry for him at school because whoever would make fun of him, he'd beat up. Um, so he would, he kind of kept his pride that way by being a fighter. To answer your question more specifically, he, 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 um, he made money. I, I, I say that because he started with a sailboat and then he had a schooner and then he had steamboats and then he sold his, at the age of 70, sold everything and went into railroads. And, um, and the reason was always the same. He went where the money was and, um, he, he didn't, he had no great, well, he didn't come from the kind of background where one would think about doing a great thing with your career. They were all trying to survive, but he wanted to do better. I mean, he really thought he was something. Um, so what happened was he started out, his, his mother, when he was ready to, he got angry at his father. He was going to take off to the seas. His mother convinced him to stay home. And uh, she managed to find $100 because he mentioned that if he, um, you know, if he didn't go on the ships, what was going to happen? She was begging him not to leave. And so he, um, the mother gave him $100 that the aunt was going to give the family. The aunt had the farm next door um, for clearing three acres of land. So he, uh, you know, 
she gave him the money if he would clear the three acres and he was able to buy the sailboat. The sailboat was very successful. Um, he, his, his father also had a sailboat, but never made any money. And he thought you just had to be dependable. Um, he worked day and night um, with his sailboat and had kind of bragged that he was going to give his mother a thousand dollars at the end of the year. And um, he did. Um, I, I want to read you that. Okay. Sure. Just one second. Sure. Okay, page 116. Okay, so he hands his mother the $1,000 after he had been working, and she said, um, she answers, take a few hundred for yourself. You earned it. A promise is a promise. I have more money from where that came from between the day and night work. You're going to wear yourself out. I won't. I won't. It isn't like work. I enjoy it. You don't have to lie to me. This is his mother he's speaking to after he'd given her the fact. It's not a lie. Can't explain it. <coughs> Sorry. It's okay. <coughs> Go ahead. It's not a lie. Can't explain it. But when I think of the money I'm going to make, it's like at the carnival trying to win the prize, banging that big hammer with everything you got. It's fun. Can't be fun in the winter. I'm telling you it is. Winning the prize every day, the most money I've ever seen. His, Charlotte, his sister Charlotte giggles. Everyone says you're the best boatman on Staten Island. Anyway, so he starts with that, and um, he makes it into a, a like the Staten Island Ferry, which the Vanderbilts eventually own. But um, he, he leaves at an exact time, regardless of whether the boat is full or not. And so he so he keeps to that schedule, unlike the other guys who were going across the uh, the bay. And and uh, as as you hear, he makes a tremendous amount of money. And loves every minute of it. I mean, partly showing off in the blizzards, he would take people and um, and refuse to take more than the ten cents because it was a scheduled trip. Um, you know, he's like honorable, but he also became known as he really wasn't a thief. He never broke the law, but he, he was classified as one of the robber barons when the some of the reporters, you know, wanted to make fun of all the rich people. Sure. But. Um, so, Anyways, so was, there, was there a particular article or nonfiction book that, that you read about Vanderbilt that spurred your interest in writing Commodore? Well, there were actually, once I made the decision, um, I, I, it started with the internet. You know, Vanderbilt came up for some reason or another. I read, read a little about him and became fascinated and thought he would make a great story. Um, there was a, uh, let's see, I have it here. There was a book about three years ago that won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, which was a biography, a very fine biography of, of Vanderbilt. I found it, you know, dense and heavy and scholarly and careful, but not the most fun to read. Um, but it did win the Pulitzer Prize by, I think, Styles. Um, I'll try to remember the name. Sure. And then I just put together three or four of the other biographies and, and really uh, learned that there was a con considerable disagreement. I mean, it was 1793, so the details of his life weren't... Uh, you know, carefully preserved, and there's room, which left me room to do uh, uh, more creative things with this life. I mean, it's, I would say it's 99% based on fact, but I obviously have a good time with uh, his motivations, the dialogue, and, and I change the date slightly to make it fit with the story, um, but it's 99% uh, 
it's it's fiction, not not a biography, but it's it's pretty reliable, and and I think perhaps captures the spirit of the man. Although I really never met him, and I'm sure nobody can really describe him. It's too long ago. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm sorry. In, in your research for for writing Commodore, was there any specific anecdote or fact about Vanderbilt's life that that surprised you to discover? Well, the whole thing was a surprise once I, uh, you know, started reading. I mean, it, this was a uh, <laughs> nasty man. He he enjoyed being the curmudgeon. And, and there's a lot of famous quotes where he, you know, where people once put him down for his lack of education. And, and he said things like, uh, well, I can't spell, but I can always hire somebody for five dollars a week to do my spelling. And then, uh, you know, there, there were many times where he was... Uh, uh, mocked by the uh, the old money. I mean, this was a spitting, cursing man who spoke poor grammar. Um, and when he tried to, uh, I mean, he did business with the old families, moneyed families, but they wanted nothing to do with him socially. Um, and you know, he 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 resented that. I mean, he he wanted acceptance. Um, he was a little crazy that way because, I mean, or maybe it's typical of what happens, but. After he made, I think after he became practically the richest man in the world, um, he built a house where all the other rich people lived. Before that, he had lived on Staten Island, which is where he grew up, uh, and and built a mansion there. But he he didn't try to mix. Well, every time he tried to mix with higher society, he was rebuffed. Um, so he, he uh, you know, built a house there, and his wife, who was also a farm girl. Remember, he, oh, I didn't mention this. He mentioned his first, he married his first cousin who lived on the next farm. Okay, his Aunt Beth's daughter. They grew up together. I'm sure they, they laid in the grass together. Um, but at 18, he married her. Mm-hmm. Um, this was because, well, let me finish this. This is an interesting fact. When they became extremely wealthy and he wanted to build this house among the rich people, his wife freaked out because she had been, you know, that he had had, he had this boat, you know, he opened up this boat and invited all society and they all ignored him or laughed at him when he tried to show uh, them around this, this boat on the Hudson River. But she had seen enough of it and couldn't imagine living among them. She was a very family oriented person who uh, spent every day with her, her, her grown children and her, uh, a, f- a few of them lived in Manhattan, but most were in Staten Island and her sisters on the next farm et cetera. That's where she wanted to live. And that's where she wanted to spend her life. And he wanted to move um, among the, you know, the uppity ups. She freaked out and went into this deep depression. So much so that, uh, you know, he first he sent her off with one of his children on a trip to Canada. She came back as, you know, she didn't want to get out of bed. She didn't shower. She did anything because she, you know, he knew what would cure her, which is to say, we're not moving but he wasn't willing to do that. He just thought she would have to adjust. There's other stories about other adjustments she had to make. Um, but uh, she, he put, had her put away in Flushing, New York, um, which was then country. Now it's uh, like a Chinatown. But um, it, was, it was once country. And he, he, they just took her away. And then his mother came in furious because he started to fool around with the younger women. His mother came in and just said, "Get that's your wife, damn it. Get her out of there. And, um, you know, he went along with it and his wife came out and they went to live there and she started to spend long weekends in Staten Island and 
Well, they didn't split up formally. He would visit her in Staten Island. But basically, she then lived her life in Staten Island. And he came to accept it. You know, she was who she was. And, and she wasn't wrong. Because they really didn't belong among, you know, the people that lived on their block. Um, it just bothered him less as he became more and more successful. That kind of thing just wasn't important to him. Um, plus, he had now become the, the star of Wall Street. And he would go up to Saratoga, and there were all kinds of younger um, Wall Street millionaires um, that, uh, you know, surrounded him and, and uh, made him feel important. Um, I got lost there. But that was an interesting story that he put his, uh, that he put his wife away in an asylum um, because of her depression and that his mother yanked her, you yank her out of there. You know, it was that kind of family. Um, sure. And then they, you know, live the rest of their life. I have a lot of other interesting things I, I'd like to tell you, okay? Sure. Okay. For instance, um, one of the things the book captures is just how hard life was. You read a little bit about, you know, they're working in the fields and the cold and everything. But um, people died all the time. His brother died. Um, his son died. You, you heard about her, his father's two parents died so that he was an orphan. His mother's father died. This was a common occurrence. I mean, people with their natural foods, let's go to that. I mean, this is a common occurrence for these people who didn't have antibiotics and immunizations. People were dying left and right. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it was, uh, you know, it was like a Dickens novel, but a Dickens novel was the way reality was. That right. is Remember, this is also an indentured servant, somebody that could put chains around their necks. I mean, his ancestors. So life was hard. It was very hard. Um, so his successes, um, I think, were all the more notable. But here's the stuff I wanted to read to you. Um, well, actually, let me just continue on this idea of how hard life was. When he had, when he became the richest man in the world, he um, traveled in a European tour. Um, with his yacht, which was said to be, you know, nicer than the Queen of England's yacht. Um, and uh, it was the first vacation of his life at 60 years old. When he went to Europe, I mean, there's two points I want to make from reading this. It was followed in the newspapers everywhere. Okay, so that the, the New York Herald uh, wrote, the sovereigns of Europe have looked upon and alarm, surprised at our progress, and alarm lest the lesson it silent, silently inculcates might be learned by their own oppressed subjects. The scientific American weighed in. Queen Victoria, Tsar Nicholas of Russia, and Napoleon III will get some of their conceit knocked out of them by a private citizen of New York, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Now, you know, it's very hard for us to imagine the kind of pride that Americans would feel because we're so used to being the top dog all the time. But the fact is, you know, I have another thing I can read to you about the celebration for the Erie Canal, you know, in 1825, which was not that long after England marched into the United States and almost took the whole country back, um, burnt down Washington, D.C. We were not a secure, we, we, we weren't a wealthy nation nor was anybody, I mean, maybe England more than most. We, uh, our people starved when there were, you know, I mean, a million people starved in Ireland 
I might say in the Netherlands, which is where Vanderbilt's ancestors were willing to sign up as indentured servants to get to America, they were starving there too. So I, I, I think that is often lost in, in historical, I mean, everybody knows it, people die, da, 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 da. But I don't mm-hmm. think people really understand um, just how uh, amazing it was for somebody to become richer than the king uh, of England and to have a nicer yacht. Um, all of America was beginning to get this sense like, we're winners. This little experiment of you know us immigrants coming to this crazy place, leaving everything. Um, th- there was you know people began to get the psychology that you know that there was hope. Actually, I'm going to read you that too. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, um, I, I did want to ask now. Now that Commodore is published, are you considering writing other similar books, fiction novels based on historic characters? No. No. Nope. Not at this moment. I, I mean, I, I've had trouble. Um, finding an agent and, and uh, you know, getting attention to this book. And uh, I, it just doesn't seem to be what people are interested in, or at least he isn't. You know, you would think somebody that had this spectacular story and, and uh, just an amazing, uh, you know, personal conquest and also uh, uh, what it meant to this country and why he was famous and why people you know, jumped on his wagon like Michael Jordan, like I said. And and then also there's the theme of the how fleeting fame is because it's he's a forgotten man. And so if I did do a historical figure, I, I wouldn't mind it, but I'd have to find somebody that people really were interested in. And most historical figures, people aren't that interested. I mean, you can just write about George Washington so many times. Right. Um, so no, I, I, I mean, I, I, you know, if I, if this book succeeds and gets read by enough people so that people begin to look for a book by me. Who knows? Maybe I would do it then. Right. Uh, had, had you had you written other novels or fiction prior to writing Commodore? Well, um, you know, I, I'm a psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. And people have read some of my articles and um, said to me, you know, some of the, uh, the patients that you're describing sound like uh, characters in a novel. You know that they, they came, which I took as a compliment. It meant they came to life as people. But um, uh, no, I, I did write like probably every writer has written a uh, autobiographical. Uh, I don't know what it was. I guess family story. At the time, Roots was uh, written. Um, right. I, I thought I would do a Jewish one of uh, you know my parents, my grandfather, my great grandfather, and and tell a story along that line. But that was, I mean, it, you know, it, it was a different time. It, it got through the first uh, level at, at Simon and & Schuster, and, you know, it, it's sitting on my shelf somewhere. But, but that was a lot of work, and I did learn how to be a novelist in that. And then I put it away and mainly wrote psychiatric articles. I mean, there's numerous articles by me, most of them iconoclastic, but uh, I think interesting. Well, well, if if someone's listening to this and they're interested in your novel Commodore or learning more about it, do you do you have a website they could go to, or is it best just to to find it on on Amazon? Well, there's a CommodoreNovel.com. Great. And um, if you know, I don't know if somebody's interested by this. The, the psychiatric articles is on uh, SimonSobo.com. 
Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Simon Sobo, author of Commodore, a new novel about the life of Cornelius Vanderbilt. Commodore is available now, so grab a copy. Simon, thanks for doing this interview. You're welcome. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.